Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. For the first conversation of the podcast, I'm meeting with Trish Higgins, who, along with her husband James Higgins and brother-in-law Palmer Higgins, run Chenmark Capital in Portland, Maine. Chenmark Capital acquires and operates small companies for the long term using their own capital, with no intention of selling. A perfect example of permanent equity. What makes Chenmark unique is that they look for slow-growing, steady, and boring businesses and seek to operate them as efficiently as possible. Trish is the perfect first guest for Think Like an Owner because she has experience being both the investor in the business and serving an operating role in their portfolio companies. Our conversation ranges from discussions around capital allocation within the portfolio companies to the Chenmark car wash and why the small business acquisition market at the moment feels a lot like Zillow. We held our conversation in a quiet area of a shopping mall in Boston, so there's occasional background noise. I assure you, however, that this past audio performance is not indicative of future audio performance. In fact, I hope it makes the conversation sound more authentic and relatable. Please enjoy my conversation with Trish Higgins. I want to start by asking you, uh, what made you leave your um, hedge fund jobs and move into buying businesses in, in their entirety? What was that? decision what motivated that i graduated from business school my husband james and i we moved to connecticut we bought a house it was lovely um and started work at a hedge fund asset management firm called aqr and about a year into doing that we both realized like that wasn't the life that we wanted and that we felt the desire to do something much more entrepreneurial um and also that we felt like we spent a lot of time screens just looking at Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoints, Bloomberg screens, and we wanted to do something that felt more, that we're having a tangible impact on something. Um, so it took us a little while playing around with ideas um, alongside James's brother, Palmer, who was living with us at the time, about kind of like, what are we gonna do that makes us feel like we're actually spending our time doing something useful? Um, and the idea of buying small businesses um, and helping sort of them operate and building a portfolio of those companies that generated cash flow sort of was something we kept coming back to, um, kept stress testing it. And finally, sort of as we started talking through it more and more, we started saying, okay, well, how are we actually going to do this? We started evaluating that until finally, you know, we found a company that we were pretty sure was going to close. And so at that point, we, uh, I, you know, I quit my job and moved to do this full time. But it was really more, it was one, it, it was not really, there was a, an investment component to it, but it wasn't really driven by like money. It was more driven by the fact that we wanted to do something we felt like was more interesting with our days and our lives than just sort of live out this kind of Connecticut suburb finance life that just like wasn't the right fit for us. In your hedge fund jobs, were there times where where you can remember looking at public companies and bringing those lessons you learned into these now private businesses that you were analyzing, what things did you find helpful in analyzing private businesses that you learned through your public investing? 
there's a couple answers to that. One is Palmer was actually an equity research analyst. So, I mean, his ability to build financial statements, you know, he really understood how the different financial statements talk to one another on a very granular basis. I mean, even though he doesn't like to admit it, like he actually does know a lot about just basic transactional accounting and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, that was incredibly helpful uh, when we were starting to build deal models and all of that sort of stuff. So I'd say that that was something he specifically brought to the space that usually isn't a skill set that is super developed in small business. For me, I was more of an investment research analyst. So I could do sort of the basic finance stuff, but then I could also do just general sort of market research on things. And I'd say that the framework on how to do that, but then also to say like, here is the thesis and then here are the three things that matter and here's the actual decision that we have to make. It was really helpful because it allowed me to not ever get too far into the weeds to focus on saying, okay, this is a situation, there's uncertainty, let's make a decision and move on. And that was something that I learned from like basically day one of being in sort of more traditional investment role that I think has been really helpful in the world of of small business. Because I think if you are only doing research all the time, you just like don't actually get much done. When you went through these businesses to acquire, it, it sounds like you just found a lot of like pizzerias and other random businesses. How did you filter through businesses that you would be interested in buying? And are there business models you have found over the years to be really attractive and that you hunt for? One, I think it's an evolution. So we're still in very early days of what we're trying to do. So I'd say we're still very much learning what exactly it is we're looking for in a business. Um, When we first started, you know, we're just looking at like, what are businesses you can buy? Full stop. And it turns out that most of the businesses out there in terms of volume are, you know, retail, pizzerias, liquor stores, restaurants, uh, that sort of thing. For some people, those are great businesses. For us, we felt like we wanted to focus on something that was a little, two things. One, there was a certain size threshold we were looking at. So we were looking for companies that had cash flow of over a million dollars. And there just aren't that many pizzerias out there that hit that criteria. Um, So that sort of disqualified them to start with. Um, And then the second piece is that we wanted something that was a little less um, consumer focused and a little more sort of business focused with the sort of theory that you know, doing a B2B type industry, we could build a bit more of a sort of competitive advantage in, in that area versus we felt like there's a lot of disruption happening right now in sort of the consumer markets in general. And that wasn't really some a place where we wanted to get started. And speaking of competitive advantage, now that you've been doing this for a few years and you've acquired multiple businesses and proven that you can do it, is there an advantage that you get in terms of deal flow and that most companies now reach out to you instead of the other way around? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that everything's a scale. So I think the fact that we've done multiple deals and we actually know what the deal process looks like and can talk somebody through that. Um, and instead of us just saying, you know, having no track record and talking to an owner who for whom this is the most important thing financially they'll probably ever do to be able to say like don't talk to me talk to you know 
this other guy who's gone through this process with us um, about his experience is a really valuable thing for us. But, you know, we still make efforts um, and spend resources in trying to get out there and meet business owners. So it's not as if we just sort of sit in our office all day and have the phone ringing off the hook. People are just dying to sell to us. They're still, you know, we still have to do work to get out there. And I think if we're critical of our own efforts, we are not like particularly good at uh, marketing and branding of ourselves. I think we could do a better job of making sure that owners knew that we were an option. And I think we've done that a little bit and we have sort of focused on that. It has produced good results, but it's not something that sort of comes naturally or that we've spent a huge amount of time and energy sort of figuring out, you know, how do we make sure business owner in Toronto, Ontario knows that when they want to sell, they should call us. Um, so that's like the next stage in our evolution. We've been a little more for the past year, a little more internally focused just because there's a lot of different processes for us to build up internally. And so now we're at a stage where we're having conversations about how do we become a little more external and get our name out there a bit more. When you tell these business owners that your goal is not to buy their company, add a bunch of leverage and then sell it in a few years, and you tell them you're going to hold it for a long period of time and you're there to you know, sort of turn the keys over. How do they react to that? Are they pretty receptive? It depends. <laughs> uh, I, I think some owners are, some owners care about that. Some owners don't, right? So some owners say like, I built this company up over the last however many years. I want to sell it for as much money as I possibly can. And maybe they, you know, they care about, you know, some key people, or maybe they feel less sentimental about that aspect. You know, maybe they care about the business carrying on for a long period of time. You know, maybe they don't. So for us, we're trying to find the owners that care about that. You know, for the ones who do care about that sort of thing, then I think that's where it's a good fit for us. But there are a lot of businesses out there. Some have like zero interest in our value proposition. We're very comfortable with that. Um, and so we tend not to be bidding sort of against other people in that way we tend to say like this is our offer if you're trying to get like the very most from a like cash in your bank account perspective like we're probably not the right fit but if you want to work with more of a family-oriented firm if you want to work with people who intend to own the company for a long time who want to keep your management team on etc cetera, etc cetera, then like we're the right fit for that but the good thing for our model is we don't need to buy hundreds of companies to be successful. So probably like one of the hundreds of thousands of companies out there at any one time for whom that's like an interesting value proposition. <laughs> when you acquire a business, it sounds like you do a lot of operational improvements and trying to increase efficiency. Um, what are some things that you do to add value and increase efficiency in these companies? It sounds like you have a director of technology at Chenmark whose sole job is to increase technology or increase the efficiency of it in your subsidiaries. How does that process work? Whether it adds value over the long term is still theoretical since we haven't yet experienced the long term. But one of the things we've observed, the companies that are the size that we're targeting they don't have super developed um, executive suites because they don't have the dollars to do so. There's no tech help or no HR help or no finance help. It's just that you people of our size of target business tend to um, sort of contract that out to part-time consultant-esque people. 
one, they're not thinking about that all of every day. Two, they tend to pay a lot. And three, sometimes they're not the highest skilled um, in whatever their area is. Um, so part of our theory has been as we grow, we have the resources to attract really, really talented individuals in individual sectors and that they can spend all of their days thinking about making our companies better in that way. Um, and so we swap out the sort of dollars for consultants that are currently being spent and hopefully get a pickup and value add for full-time employees at our you know, HQ. The first step for everybody, for our team is to think about sort of downside sort of risk management. Um, so from a tech perspective, that would be making sure everybody has the right sort of tech infrastructure to make sure that, you know, they have the right protections, that they've got the right setup to be able to do the things that they need to be doing. That is sort of step one that our CTO goes through. Um, and then after that, we start thinking about more like offensive things in terms of how do you build custom applications that actually help improve our businesses. But everybody kind of goes through the, we call it the Chenmark car wash for First is you know the, first, the downside protection, um, and I believe that over time that de-risks the business, and it also provides it with like a more of a stable base to grow over time. But you know we're still very much in the process of doing those things, so we're doing it with the notion of it paying off ten years from now. What are some of the components or details of that Chenmark car wash? What sort of things are that? I'm sure it's not standardized. Like for every company, you do these things, but maybe there's a few consistent things that you yeah. usually do yeah. with businesses. Um, so it is becoming more standardized in terms of we buy a company, this is what has to happen. Um, so I mean, the first thing is from a, I'll start with finance, from a finance perspective, the integrity and timeliness of our financial reporting is really important. And there's also usually if it, something isn't being produced accurately or in a timely way, it usually points to some breakdown in process at some point. So the first thing we do is kind of create a forcing mechanism to see if, to create deliverables that then shows us where there might be issues if there are issues. Um, so for at the end of every month, we have a standard accounting principles, which is super boring sounding, but it basically goes through the the what any accountant would find like very, very, very basic. But you know, this is how you close out a month. And these are all of the different steps that you have to go through to make sure that your month is closed out. And then, you know, there's a, a progress and, you know, you you can we are we're building it right now so we can visually see where people are in the clo month end closeout process and that is one thing that starts right away you know training the in-house staff if they don't know how to do it already with our director of finance saying okay this is all the stuff that needs to happen you know that is like an example of like everybody does that now everybody creates a a weekly cash management dashboard. So saying, you know, here is the amount of cash we have in the bank. Here's the amount of AR, AP. This is, you know, if we have a line of credit, this is how much is outstanding. You know, and that is basically like an ongoing um, insight into the, the cash side of the business, which is usually not produced before because the owners always just look at the bank account and get a sense of how things go. But forcing the companies to do that Every month means that, you know, you're starting to create a culture of everybody looking at these things and being accountable to them. So like those are things on the finance side of like the car wash, I'd say that there's a lot of training involved with those things. You know, the other thing, you know, HR side, 
everybody goes through a handbook review. Everybody, uh, like an employee handbook review. Everybody goes, you know, job descriptions are all reviewed to make sure they're all being done properly. Um, you know, recruiting practices, different like payroll overtime practices, like all these different things that are really important to the operations of a business that usually companies are trying their best, but frankly, like a lot of these rules are really complicated. And so it could be difficult to really even know what to do. We try to go through each of these things and be like, okay, you know, you don't have just an example, you know, there are different job types that if you're in require different overtime eligibility. So if you're in a straight financial analyst job, if your job description is written in one way, you're not entitled to overtime if you work over 40 hours a week. If you want to get like super into the weeds about it, if you just have a straight analyst, not investment analyst job that is writ- job description is written in another way, somebody could make the argument that, hey, I worked over 40 hours this week and you didn't, you didn't pay me time and a half. So it's those sorts of things that we try to like bring our expertise to like making sure all our companies are really buttoned up. Those are the sorts of things in the car, which is why it started off, this whole thing started off as very investment focused and you know now it is very operational focused as we try to build out um a lot of these things are not if you went to probably like any company that warren buffett owns like these would all be very 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 basic things but for companies of the size that we're targeting they have some of them they definitely don't have all of them so we basically buy a company we score it on all these different sort of internal report cards we have and then that creates our action plan from there but like that can take a couple of years. <laughs> For any prospective business owners who might be listening or wanting to sell their business down the road, mm-hmm. what sorts of these things could they do either now or over time in their business that would make it easier to sell and make that process a little bit smoother? Yeah. There's a couple different things. One is I think that they could talk to a local a business broker of some type who could work with them to help them understand what an owner might look for help them sort of think about what their business might be worth and different things they could do to add value and that sort of thing. Some business brokers are really, really good. Some are not that good. So there's a little bit of nuance to picking that sort of person. There's a fair amount of, I think if you just kind of Googled around, you'd probably find a fair amount of what people are looking for. But I mean, the reality is, is like one, don't break the law in your business practices, which generally means don't run a lot of your personal expenses through the books keep financial statements in general, pay your people legally, and try to make more money than you spend. (laughs) You know, like that's really what it's about. I think the big things are if you don't have any processes in place and you can't produce clean reports about what's going on in your company, it makes it harder to sell. In your interview with Patrick, you described the the market for this micro PE space as being relatively friendly. You could, you know, reach out to other firms doing what Chenmark does and ask questions and get advice. Is it still like that, or is the environment slowly changing with the with new search funds or searchers out of MBA programs? Do you find that the environment's slowly changing? I think it might be. There are definitely a couple of searchers that come out, you know, are saying, you know, oh, well, you know, if I, I don't want to do this deal, but I'll refer it to you for some sort of like fee or something like that. And we're just not really into that. Um, 
we referred deals to people all the time with nothing in return. I think there might be a little bit of that. My hypothesis is that the people who think like that aren't going to get a deal done because that's kind of not the way I believe the small business space works. I feel pretty strongly that like we will continue to be friendly and open and collaborative, even if maybe at the margin, some people are not that way, just because like I'd prefer to conduct business <laughs> that way. And I think that this space is still so big. Like, it's so big that there is a lot more room for us all to add value by sharing information than there is by competing. You know, frankly, that's just the reality of it. I mean, maybe if it's many, many, many years down the road and this has become like a highly efficient market, which I think there are probably reasons why that wouldn't happen. But if it did, then maybe it could be more competitive. But I, I still think that there's a room to share best practices and to share deals with other people because like the reality in the space is like what I'm looking for and what fits both my investment criteria, but also like our personality as a firm and what we're looking for is, is different from if you start a search fund, what you might be looking for just because of what's interesting to you. And so what is a good deal to me? It's a bad deal to you and sometimes and vice versa. So that's why I think there's a fair amount of sharing to be had because it's not, we see deals all the time that on the surface, it might be interesting for us. And then we kind of were like, you know what? Like, it's just not an area we want to be in for whatever reason. And we're like, oh, well, there was that guy who was, you know, looking for a deal in Texas, kind of in this size range. So, like, maybe he'd be interested. So, it's still a really fragmented, inefficient market. It's not something I worry too much about. Then, do you see other searchers in these search funds starting to not necessarily compete, but are also bidding on these companies that you're looking at or these deals? Are you finding more of those or bigger private equity firms too? It's not so much that there are like actively other people bidding on companies right now that you're like in some sort of like direct bidding war. I actually feel like it's more that overall valuations have gone up everywhere. So I, to us, we see it more as like a small business owner who's like, well, I read Uber's worth $100 billion. So like my company's got to be worth 20. It's more just like the general sentiment, I think, of where we are in the market cycle as opposed to like the reality sometimes. Um, and there are definitely people who are paying up for acquisitions right now, particularly in businesses that are growing, uh, industries that are growing faster. We tend to not focus as much on those like sort of more tech focused industries. But we have definitely noticed people coming to market. It's almost like owners are being told that it's a good time to sell by just like the world. Um, and so they'll come and it's almost like they're like, well, I don't really want to sell my business, but if I could sell it for $30 million, like I would. And so we've definitely seen a pickup in the last year, probably people just coming to market almost to be like, hey, like it's almost, I think of it as, I don't know how often you go on Zillow.com, um, but you're pretty young. So you probably don't go on as much as like somebody in their thirties does. But in like Zillow.com, they have like a make me sell thing where you could go on and list your house and it's like it's not for sale but it would be at this price and i feel like there's a lot of that in the small business space at the moment where it's like i don't really want to sell but if you were going to pay me this much like i would we're not going to do that there are still deals to be had and attractive valuations for people who have like a similar value like care about the value proposition and I think that we're probably at a time of the cycle where it doesn't make a lot of sense to chase deals. So we'll just wait. <laughs> we're not really in a rush. And at this point in the, the market cycle, what do you see as the prospective returns going forward? It sounds like, you know, from what you've been seeing that valuations are going up, you know, the 
you know, I will sell at this price yeah. type of owners. What does a return look like for you going forward at, at Chenmark? Yeah, so I think we still believe that we can buy companies for between three to five times that have cash flow of sort of one to three million. So like our return expectations haven't really changed. We have had to make sure we're not chasing deals because the more and more we pay, and we started, this is more sort of nuanced part of our strategy is that like we're not really looking for things that are going to grow a lot because growth is actually, we think kind of like represents a lot of risk in our model because usually growth means you have to invest something a lot into the company and to get really like in a short period of time and that can cause sort of like problems in a business model. Whereas like we are much more fans of just like steady growth over time, not like, oh, we're going to double a company next year. Um, especially like that might work in a like, tech-based business. Um, but like for the businesses we are, it's like, like really hard to pull off well um, and probably causes more stress in a business model than like we want. For us, it's difficult to have the, the higher you pay in a multiple, the faster you need a company to grow to make it look to get the same returns and so for us it's more important to stay more disciplined on the valuation side um, so that we don't get in a situation where we have to have growth to make the numbers work do you find that it's harder to have that discipline with your buy price as the market cycle continues or changes no we've got palmer our partner and he's the most value cautious person in the world so he's we have a good balance internally um and again you know we're not in a rush so you know if we don't do any deals for the next five years like i don't really care at the moment we don't have any external equity investors so it doesn't really matter it's not as if i have to call up somebody and say hey you know like you thought we were going to grow this much this year because i told you but we're not actually going to and have to have a whole sort of thing about it you know if we end up just holding the companies we have and have them kind of plug away and build cash and pay down debt or have cash available to buy a company when it becomes available, then like that would be great. And that's a perfectly fine path for us, um, as well as a perfectly fine path to maybe, for all I know, this afternoon, Palmer will call and say like, oh my God, three amazing companies fell out of the sky and they all want to sell next week. And can we make it happen? And, you know, how are we going to handle this? And like, well, we that would be an okay path too. It would probably be a little too much growth, but like, you get the point. <laughs> Are there companies that have this more slow growth style? It sounds like landscaping companies have been a pretty consistent business model that you've found. We definitely more like business service, home services, more like blue collar industry type fit that mold. Um, we're usually looking for things that have like high amounts of contract revenue. Scaling up the number of people to do work is kind of a hard thing, which is why it's hard to scale. You know, it's hard to go from landscape maintenance firm that's doing 10 million of revenue to 25 million revenue in a year and do that well, because like that means so many more people to do that job. So there's a huge HR element to recruiting those people, training them, making sure they're doing a good job, oversight, all that sort of stuff. That is that's like really, really, really hard to do. But what's easier is to go from 10 million to 12 million. And the amount, uh, you still have to do that stuff, but it's much more manageable and allows you to kind of build up those systems over time in a way that you probably couldn't build if you did it really quickly. A lot of the more trades businesses definitely fit that criteria and it's something that we, we look at as like an attractive industry. 
How has the Chenmar Capital team itself grown over the years? Obviously, it was just the three of you to start out with. But mm-hmm. what kinds of roles have you added? How have you managed Chenmark's growth? Yeah, so we prefer to keep everything more in the company to the extent that we can. I would prefer us to never have a huge <laughs> team. It is. It was helpful from day one for us to have all three, like three of us, uh, just because of just pure bandwidth. And so we still, I think, have a pretty lean team. We have a director of technology. He is looking to hire more of a junior person to help him right now. He has very high standards, so I'm not sure we'll ever actually hire anybody. But we've got a director of finance who's a CPA, and he does all the more transactional accounting review type stuff. And then we have a vice president of reporting. He is basically generates all of our internal reports and dashboards and does special projects that involve Excel and Tableau, basically. Um, and the goal is there to, to push that stuff in a usable manner to the teams at the portfolio companies. We would prefer to allocate resources to our companies as opposed to like the oversight of our companies. Um, so we're trying to make sure that we are creating oversight that minimizes liability and provides a little bit of support for growth. But beyond that, to us, there's not like a really a lot of point to devoting large amounts of dollars to people to oversee a company as opposed to like the people, as we call, who do like the actual work um, and who are actually out there like generating value for us. So if I had like an incremental $100,000, I'd probably prefer it to like go towards helping our companies as opposed to like hiring somebody to be a be an overseer. And so when you have extra cash and you want to invest it in a one of your businesses, how do you decide which projects and which businesses are funded? Do you have an IRR hurdle rate that you need to hit? Or what are your what's your criteria for making those decisions? So that is also an evolution. I think to date, it has been a little bit more internal company focused, and we are moving towards uh, a cross por- portfolio focused. Internally, it's been a bit, if you want to just continue the company as is without growth, how much do you need to spend? Let's say that's $250 to maintain you know, equipment and do whatever it is for basically maintenance capex. And then it's saying, okay, well, now you want to grow from 10 million to 12 million of revenue. How much do you need to spend to actually do that? Do you need to hire more people? Do you need to do marketing? Do you need to buy new equipment? Like all that stuff. So then that's sort of like incremental growth investment. And then in the company, you say, okay, to maintain, this is what we need to do. That happens first to grow and then it's, is it like, there's no point in spending $500,000 building out a sales team if your growth projections are zero, right? So we've had that conversation surprising number of times, or, you know, there's no point in buying like a five-year ad space at a giant billboard if again, your growth target is 1%. So it's like all these things. So in each company, you know, you kind of go through and you say, okay, we want to grow. And then what's the, or we want to grow. This is what we need to do. Then what's the return associated with it? And you kind of go through that line by line that sometimes you say no, sometimes you say yes. And sometimes you say, let's see, which really means no. And then, you know, it kind of go from there. What we're moving towards is as the portfolio gets bigger is taking it out of like a buy company 
so every company gets maintenance investment no matter what. And then starting to look a bit more strategically at investment, maybe more investment in one company and less in another if the return is higher at another company. All of that sounds like super easy and clean if you're like a finance person. If you're just looking at the numbers. If you're just looking at the numbers, you know, oh, well, like you should do this and like just don't do, you know, and it's just easy because that number is bigger than that number. Um, but like the reality is that you're talking about people. So we have operators who manage all of our businesses. They're all wonderful people. But telling so-and-so like, hey, you're, we're actually like, no, you're not spending money on that. Like that is a real conversation that you have to have and you have to maintain the balance between support, feel like giving somebody enough resources that they feel supported um, to grow their business and that like they like their job and that they are being given like the ability to succeed Versus like this very rare operator who like totally believes like, yeah, like no problem. You're going to give all the money that I generated to some other company when like, like it's fine if they believe that that company has a higher growth rate and they're participating in some way in that growth rate. But if they're not, or they actually like the real tricky part in like the real world is when like they think that like, well, I have a whatever. 50% return opportunity and the other person has a 50% return opportunity, but we actually think that they're wrong. <laughs> and then that's where like the real life of management um, and leadership and all that comes into play, which is where it goes from, hey, this company A potential return is higher than company B's. You have to scale, like escalate that or cascade it down, I guess, into how is this going to impact the culture of the company or the motivation of the leadership team or like all of those things? It sounds like it's much more of a people decision or process than it is a financial one. Am I correct? It's not that it's, it's not one or the other. It's just like, it's both. And I think that coming from the finance world, you tend to think about things as though there's not a human implication. And we're just cognizant that there is a human implication for all of the decisions we make a lot of people in the small business world are not purely motivated by money. They tend to be motivated by lots and lots of different things. So we have to be making decisions about capital allocation, taking all of those things into account and making sure that everybody understands how those decisions are made and that they're being made in a fair and consistent way. And that even if you maybe missed out this time, maybe next time you'll be the one to get the capital and, and understanding all of that. It's not the same thing as if if you're just talking with people all of whom have like a pretty sophisticated financial background so like it's it, it, it is a um, learning process and the fact that like it's a lot more nuanced in execution than it is if you just had a bunch of investors who are like oh like why did you give money for them to do that and you're like well turns out like that is a huge part of like the cultural component of a business and if we don't do that then you know we're gonna have real morale problems and we're gonna have turnover and like all that sort of stuff so it's a lot messier in real life. <laughs> Tell me about a fortunate event that happened to you that was completely by chance. My whole like career is pretty just like entirely by chance. I just happened to take a course my senior year with a guy who was sort of like a hedge fund manager and sabbatical. And that's how I got into the investment world. So I started, I just went to his class and the 
sort of most sort of by chance moment is he said like if anybody wants to review like resumes or career interests whatever you know i'm free for coffee chat hours and i think i was the only person who like took him up on it and you know it that started a relationship where he eventually offered me a job and you know i got to move to new york and i got to do like finance thing which is like crazy at least for me and for like my background and my family it was not like a thing you know that was entirely chance and it changed Going to that coffee at, I believe it was at the Aubon Pain in New Haven was like probably like where I had like a big turn in my career trajectory. I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't gone. That's a, that's a great story. Um, final question for you. What is the best business you've ever seen? There's like a, and I don't know if this is like the best business, but it's just the one that comes to mind. It was like an online provider of supplements like for like weightlifters and bodybuilders and stuff. But they happen to be located very close to a lot of like suppliers of these products and they could buy them as they were getting to like the end of their shelf life, like the end of when the actual suppliers wanted them. And they could sell them on their website and get paid by the customer before they got the inventory from the supplier, ship it out for like next day service because they were so geographically close to all these suppliers. Um, and so it allowed them to basically have no accounts receivable and have, yeah, it basically like an amazing working capital position um, and a competitive advantage because they could sell these things for much cheaper than other competitors um, because of where they were in the relationships with like these like 70 different suppliers, all who happen to like randomly be in like vaguely the same geographic region. So like, that's just something that came, I, I've just, I don't know if that's like the best business that we've ever seen, but that just came up as something that was like, I feel like there's a structural advantage to that sort of business um, that like you wouldn't otherwise you know, think about. Well, thank you very much, Trish. I've loved having you on the show. This has been a very enjoyable conversation and I'm looking forward to having more in the future. Sounds great. Awesome. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.